The following is a message by Dr. W. Robert Godfrey from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. It is uh, my privilege to welcome you all back to seminary for a new year. The new students, I think I have officially welcomed now three or four times, so I hope they feel genuinely and thoroughly welcomed. Uh, Returning students, I want to welcome you back, and uh, we all together look forward to a great year of, uh, of study and reflection, and we hope growth both in knowledge and in grace. I welcome the faculty back. It's good to think of them as actually working again. Um, Just a joke, just a joke, anything for a laugh. And uh, so uh, it has become a tradition among us to begin the new school year with a convocation that allows us to join together as a community in praise and in prayer, in confessing our faith and in uh, listening to the word of God and praying that that word of God would again uh, bless us. I am not, by nature, a very introspective person. My wife um, already is rolling her eyes, uh, uh, thinking that that is such a gross understatement that she can hardly believe that I would make it. Uh, But in the last few months, I have been not really introspective, but at least have been thinking um, and reflecting a little bit on the fact that this begins my 36th year of teaching at uh, Westminster Seminary seven years in the east, and now my 29th year, I guess that makes it in the west. And uh, I was forced to think last night as we heard new students uh, tell a little bit about who they um, are and where they come from, that uh, for at least a a good part of the entering class, uh, I had been teaching 10 years already before they were born. And uh, that begins to impress upon one the passing of years. And uh, as a historian, uh, inclined by nature to look backward anyway, uh, as I thought about those 36 years, I I thought, well, you know, there are a number of discouraging things about those 36 years. Uh, The church does not seem in better shape 36 years after um, I've been teaching than it seemed then. Uh, I don't seem in much better shape uh, after 36 years uh, than I was then. But one thing that I find greatly encouraging to me is after 36 years of teaching in a seminary and being with seminarians and with faculty members, that I have more confidence in the Word of God today than I did 36 years ago. And I had a lot of confidence 36 years ago. The time spent, those 36 years, in a community of faith studying the Word of God has had the effect of greatly increasing my sense that the scripture, in spite of all of its critics, is indeed the word of God. Uh, is a word of God which is testified to in so many ways, but I suppose in recent years, particularly for me, has been testified to by its marvelous internal intricacy and self-attestation in terms of the way in which all the parts agree with one another. And it has been a delight for me uh, in that study to see that confidence in the word of God grow. 
confidence that it is the word of God and confidence that it is precisely what the church of Jesus Christ needs today as the church of Jesus Christ has needed it in every generation. And this morning, I hope that together we can um, turn to the word of God itself to have a brief experience. Don't get too optimistic by that word brief. Um, relatively brief in comparison with 36 years. Uh, a, a brief experience of the, the profundity, the wisdom, the value, and the joy of the scriptures. And so we turn to Romans chapter 3. And in Romans... Um, Paul is not writing a mini systematic theology, uh, as has sometimes, I think, almost been alleged by a variety of people, but Paul is writing a letter. And Paul is writing a letter to a church, a church that he doesn't know directly by having been present in that church, but he's writing to a church about which he's apparently heard a fair amount and about which he is concerned that this church has had some misunderstandings both of the Apostle Paul and of the message that he preaches. And so Paul is determined in a remarkably gentle way most of the time to try to straighten out what he sees as misunderstandings in the Church of Rome. Um, I suppose as a church historian, I might pause parenthetically to say, isn't it interesting that even in apostolic days, the Church of Rome had trouble understanding the gospel, and perhaps we should not be so surprised then that the Church of Rome continues to have trouble understanding the gospel. But that's a whole other issue um, for another time. One of the issues that Paul is clearly concerned about is that there seem to be some in Rome I don't think it's abundantly clear whether they're Jews or Gentiles, but that there are some in Rome who think Paul has failed to understand the exact function of the law in God's plan of redemption, has failed to grasp the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Covenant, and has failed to recognize the truly advantageous position in which Jews find themselves still in the New Covenant. And Paul, in a variety of subtle and also explicit ways, is addressing some of these misunderstandings, it seems to me, in the Church of Rome. Uh, as he often does in his letters, he first addresses those problems indirectly and then begins to address the problems more directly. And that's what we find at the beginning of chapter 3. What advantage has the Jew? Now, I think Paul raises that question because there were people in Rome saying Paul doesn't understand the advantages that the Jews have. So Paul says very directly, what advantage does the Jew have? And the answer is an intriguing answer. Well, the great advantage, the first advantage at least that Paul wants to mention in this context is that the Jews have the oracles of God. What greater advantage could anyone have? than having the word of God, possessing God's own revelation of himself. And so Paul wants to underscore that. God has given us, as Jews, first, his word. And so we have this treasure 
We have this deposit of truth. We have this absolutely reliable revelation of himself. If we want to know anything about God, about true religion, we have the word. And that was the great advantage to the Jews in the Old Testament time. Having the word of God. And that's the great advantage we have, isn't it? As we gather in this place, we have the very word of God. We have the revelation of God. We have the oracles of God. The Greek word here is logia, the the sayings maybe, the the declaration of God. It's interesting, Stephen, before his martyrdom, uses the same word and talks about the living logia of God, the living word of God. This is not just a book. It's not just a dead letter. It is itself God's living word amongst his people. Living in the sense of bringing life to those who hear it and to understand it. Now, why is Paul stressing this point at this place in his letter to the Romans? Well, he's stressing it to make, I'm very glad to announce to you, three points. Paul, after all, was a preacher. And uh, uh, he makes uh, really three points here. Why is it so important that we have the word of God. First of all, that we might know in truth God's faithfulness, who God is, how reliable he is, how his word can be utterly depended upon to tell the truth. And Paul is making the point to everyone who is reading this letter that we live in a world full of lies. He quotes the Old Testament to that point. Verses 13 and 14 of Romans chapter 3. Their throat is an open grave. They use tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We live in a world of lies. A world of big lies and little lies. I said to some folks this summer, I I have to sort of confess that At one point when I would study the Psalms, I thought there was an awful lot of comment in the Psalms about the power of the tongue and the danger of the lie and the the problems that could be caused by people telling um, things that were untrue. And the longer I live, the more convinced I am, surprise, surprise, that the scriptures are right at this point. Both in churches and out of churches, the damage done by lies, little lies and big lies, is immense. And uh, Paul wants to pause here and, and remind us of the importance of the truth. Some of you may realize that I have a certain level of interest in the Second World War as a kind of hobby. And uh, one of the important things you learn from a study of the uh, Second World War is a principle laid down by Joseph Goebbels, the head of propaganda for the Nazi regime in Germany. And one of his important principles is uh, people are sometimes able to spot a little lie because they live in a world of little liars. And some people become adept at recognizing little lies and ferreting them out. But most people don't expect a big lie. And so if you're going to lie, tell a big lie. Uh, Tell a lie that uh, is going to really take people in because they will assume you couldn't possibly tell that big a lie and expect anybody to believe it. So it must be true. 
And Joseph Goebbels and we live in worlds of big lies. National socialism was a big lie. Communism was a big lie. Atheism is a big lie. We're surrounded by big lies. And Paul wants to celebrate the fact that in a world of big lies, there is something that is always true, always reliable, always dependable, and that is God and his word. And so Paul comes to this wonderful, dramatic declaration in this text that really has echoed through the centuries of the church, let God be true and every man a liar. It's a great eloquent statement. It's a little hard to really believe. Not theoretically, but practically. The pressure of trying to be conformed to man's wisdom, to man's truth, to man's insight into reality is immense on all of us. And so we do need to be encouraged and, and recommitted again and again and again that no matter how much the world testifies to our foolishness for believing the word of God, in the end of the day, we are right, not because of our wisdom, not because of our insight, but because the fundamental truth of reality is that God is always faithful. God is always reliable. God's truth is always dependable. Let God be true and every man a liar. That's what we're committed to as a seminary. That's why we gather to study. We want to know what that word really says. We recognize as we gather that we are still fallible even when we're studying the Bible. But we know we can never get closer to the truth that in our effort to understand the Bible truly and faithfully. And Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 3 that one of the great truths that God reveals in his word is the truth that God will judge the world in truth and righteousness. Now it's interesting that he makes that point. And it's a point that especially needs to be made today, doesn't it? What is a greater grist for the mill of comedians than a fire and brimstone preacher? Our culture in America has managed to make the notion of judgment, especially final judgment, almost laughable. What a victory for the evil one. To empty God of wrath, to empty the future of judgment, to fundamentally un undermine the notion that we live in a moral universe by undermining the idea of judgment. And sometimes you almost get the feeling if we would all, as human beings, just agree that there is no judgment coming, then judgment won't come. And part of the worries in the world can be so upset with us is that we're not willing to enter into this conspiracy. Because we say to the world, let God be true, though every man a liar. If God's word says judgment is coming, then we believe it. No matter how many in this world may laugh at that prospect.
And it's interesting that early on in this letter, and I think it's a critical pedagogical point for Paul to challenge attitudes in Romans, Paul suggests that the great problem mankind faces, or at least one of the great problems, I, I think it might be fair to say the greatest problem that mankind faces is what? Is the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Now why does Paul focus on the wrath of God early in the epistle? Well, because I think there were many in Rome who were thinking that approximate obedience to the law of God would please God and get them to heaven. And if God had just said the holiness of God is revealed from heaven, those Romans might have said, yeah, and that's what we're pursuing, and we've made progress, and God must surely be happy with us that we've become so relatively sanctified. But if the problem is the wrath of God, then approximate holiness, if you really think about it, won't do, will it? What's needed is that somehow the wrath of God would be satisfied and turned away. That somehow judgment would be deflected from us. It's not a partial cure that will deflect wrath. It's only a complete and full cure that will deflect wrath. Paul knows, as every good theologian through the history of the church has known, that one of the great problems with legalism and moralism is that it always reduces the severity of the law. Legalists praise the law, but are always making it say less than it says. Now, I don't want to pick on any particular group, but the image of rabbis with prayer curls and yarmulkes being led off to prison in New Jersey a few weeks ago because they were involved in laundry, laundering money will live in my mind for a long time. Uh, not because rabbis are any more subject to sinfulness than anybody else, but because here are people who gave their lives to the study of the law and missed the big things of the law. They had the prayer curls, they had the amica, but they didn't understand about stealing. That's the way it always with, is with legalists, in one sense or another. And so Paul is saying to all of us, what advantage is it to have the law? Well. By having the law, we know God's character, his complete holiness, and his complete requirement that the whole law be kept if we are not to be subject to his wrath. It's not incidental, I think, that Paul quotes in verse 4 of chapter 3 of Romans from Psalm 51. A psalm of David. A psalm from Israel's greatest king. A psalm from the man after God's own heart. 
uh, a psalm from a man who, if sensitivity to the law would have changed completely, is one of the more likely candidates. But what do we know about David? Not only that he was Israel's greatest king, and not only that he was a man after God's own heart, but we know that he was a great sinner. And Psalm 51 is a, is a psalm of his confessing his sin. And in that confession, he acknowledges that he knows his sin because God has spoken to him in his word. I know my transgressions, he says in the verse just before what's quoted here in Romans. And so Paul goes on to make the point, not only does the word of God help us to see the faithfulness of God, but the word of God helps us to see our own sinfulness. In a sense, this is one of the great points Paul wants to make here. What advantage does the Jew have? The Jew has the advantage of having the word of God, which is an, an inestimable gift and blessing. But in order for the word to really be a blessing, we have to know what it says. And what does it say? We are all sinners, lost, hopeless in ourselves. And in that regard, Paul says, no doubt to the shock and dismay of some in Rome, in that regard, Jews and Gentiles are in exactly the same place. We are all lost. We are all helpless. We are all hopeless in ourselves. And Paul, to make that point, quotes the Old Testament any number of times, actually seven times. There are good students of the Old Testament who counted that. They may have been impressed by the completeness of Paul's citations. Seven times from various parts of the Old Testament to make the point that the Old Testament itself testifies that there is none righteous, no, not one. And that the great tragedy of many in the Jewish community is they have missed this most basic teaching of the law, namely that we are sinners. And Paul says that Jews are no worse about this than Gentiles. Many Gentiles miss the point as well. But Paul is saying anybody who wants to hold up the law and stress the importance of the law had better get the most fundamental thing that the law is teaching, namely that through the law, no one can be justified. Through the law, through works of the law, no one can be justified. And so this pressing point of the apostle comes to us as well. Do we recognize how utterly helpless we are in sin. Having studied a tiny bit, again, my wife will testify how small an amount, of the history of America, uh, it always causes me to recoil when politicians today, who after all are the inheritors of a, uh, a republic um, for which Calvinism made a significant contribution, that uh, politicians today go around and saying, I believe in the essential goodness of the American people. Well, it's a very politic thing to say. It's one of the important things that politicians do, namely flatter their audiences. 
But I would like to say here publicly, I do not believe in the essential goodness of the American people or any other people. Now, we could get into a useful discussion of moral righteousness versus civic righteousness and recognize there are some distinctions to be made here. But Paul's point is a fundamentally religious point. We are sinners. That's what the law testifies. If you don't get that out of the law, you really haven't gotten the most important thing out of the law. Verse 20 of chapter 3, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is given that we might know who we are in our weakness. We might know our hopelessness and helplessness. And if the world is little inclined to hear the word of God about judgment, the world is little inclined to hear the word of God about sin either. But you see, David had said so clearly, verse 3 of Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. How had David reached that conclusion? He too had tried to close his eyes to the reality of sin, hadn't he? He didn't want to think of his adultery and his murderous activities. How does he know his sin? Well, you know, is it part out of the law of God, doesn't he? He knows it from the law, and then he knows it from the prophets, doesn't he? Because Nathan came to challenge David, to force David to think about the law. And David come, came to confess his sin, to recognize his sin. And so one of the great tasks of faithful preachers of God's word is to help people see how utterly lost they are in themselves. This is what the word of God testifies why Paul quotes so frequently, Some, somewhat over 70 times in the letter to the Romans, he quotes from the Old Testament, making the point that what he's teaching is not contrary to a correct understanding of the Old Testament, but the true fulfillment of all that the law was meant to teach. And so God has given us his word so that we might know his faithfulness, so we might know our sinfulness, and that we might know his Salvation for us. Salvation, which Paul says rather boldly, is apart from the law. It's not by the law. It's not through the law. It's not in the law that we will find salvation. It's only apart from the law that we will find salvation. Namely, in a person, in Jesus Christ the righteous, in Jesus Christ, the redeemer. In Jesus Christ, Paul says, the propitiator. What's a propitiator? It's the one who turns away wrath. It's the one who turns away wrath. It's apart from the law in Jesus that we find that hope. That's what Paul wants us to see in the scriptures. He says it's not through the law that we find that. But the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So it's not that the revelation of Jesus Christ is some huge and complete surprise. But the revelation of Jesus Christ is the culmination of all that the law and the prophets testified to. Again, you see the value of Psalm 51 in the background of this whole 
line of the apostles' reasoning. David had the law and the prophets testifying to him that he could not save himself. And so how does David respond? He prays and he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David recognizes he has no strength in himself to solve his problem and that the salvation that he needs can come from God alone in God's saving work of justifying and sanctifying David. You see, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms bear witness that we have to find salvation outside ourselves in Jesus Christ the righteous. And so you see Paul as he sets out here uh, to challenge false notions in Rome is challenging some of the most false notions that we find through the whole history of the church. False notions about the reliability of God in his word. False notions about the sinfulness of sin, false notions about how salvation must be found entirely and exclusively in another. And in doing that, Paul is encouraging us in our study, whether this is your first year or second year, third year, fourth year. I won't go on. It might become discouraging. Or even in one's 36th year to study that word, to treasure that word, to be encouraged by that word, because this truth echoes through history. Let God be true, and every man a liar. Last year in uh, the adult Sunday school at my church, I spent the year teaching on the book of the Revelation. I find the book of the Revelation is much easier to understand if you really don't know much. Um, But one of the things that I found uh, most amazing as I studied that book is to think how this book is full of these images of the power, the might, the glory, the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing images of Christ in his glory. And to whom were they given? They were given to his beloved apostle, John. Who, because of the great love of Jesus Christ for John, was dwelling in luxury and wealth and ease in a palace in Rome. Now, come on, you know enough about the book of the Revelation to know that that is not the case. Where was the dearly beloved disciple of the gloriously powerful Jesus Christ? He was in a nasty little prison on a nasty little island in the Pacific. No, well, close, Mediterranean. How tempting it must have been for John to think to himself, I didn't sign on for this difficulty. 
And if he's king and king of kings and lord of lords today, why am I not doing better? And I think if we had pressed John, how can you really believe this stuff in light of who you are? John might well have said, let God be true and every man a liar. It's not by what we see. It's not by what we feel. It's not by what the word world tells us is glorious and powerful and true. We live by faith in the word of God that what it tells us is true and that what it tells us is what the world needs to hear and that what it tells us is what God will do and accomplish in the building of his church, in the gathering of his elect, and in the glorifying of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why we gather here. That's why we study here so that we may take that great word out to a needy world. And so when your days become discouraged, when you don't have enough money and you don't have enough time and you feel like you don't have enough brain cells, uh, think maybe first of all of John on Patmos and think you do have it better probably than John. But more importantly, think about our Lord Jesus Christ and his truth and how his truth will accomplish his purpose. And be encouraged in this year by the great declaration of the Apostle Paul. Let God be true, though every man a liar. Let's pray together. Well, Lord our God, how we do thank you for your word and praise you for the way in which it clarifies, directs, purifies our minds, and encourages us in your service. Grant, O Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, each one of us here might be built up in that faith, that each one of us, through all our ministries, might be kept faithful to your word, and that Jesus Christ and his truth might be glorified through us. Hear us, for we pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.